welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. week's program, we learned about the reason why Messiah died for us. In this week's program, we want to focus more on the things he suffered in his love for us. Stay tuned through to the end of today's program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on Mark chapter 15, verse 1 through verse 41. And now, here's today's scripture portion. Mark chapter 15, verse 1 through verse 41. Immediately in the morning the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council held a consultation and bound Yeshua and carried him away and delivered him up to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, So you say. The chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer? See how many things they testify against you. But Yeshua made no further answer, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he used to release to them one prisoner whom they asked of him. There was one called Barabbas, bound with those who had made insurrection, men who in the insurrection had committed murder. The multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do as he always did for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that for envy the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude that he should release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate again asked them, What then should I do to him whom you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out exceedingly, Crucify him! Pilate, wishing to please the multitude, released Barabbas to them and handed over Yeshua when he had flogged him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away within the court, which is the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. They clothed him with purple, and weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, and spat on him, and bowing their knees did homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, 
and put his own garments on him. They led him out to crucify him. They compelled one passing by, coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to go with them, that he might bear his cross. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is, being interpreted, the place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take it. Crucifying him, they parted his garments among them, casting lots on them what each should take. It was the third hour, and they crucified him. The superscription of his accusation was written over him, The King of the Jews! With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. The scripture was fulfilled which says, He was numbered with transgressors. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, that we may see and believe him. Those who were crucified with him insulted him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Yeshua cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My Elohim, my Elohim, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. One ran, and filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let him be. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, and gave up the spirit. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. When the centurion who stood by opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the son of Elohim. There were also women watching from afar, among whom were both Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jacob the less, and of Yossi and Shalom, who when he was in Galilee followed him and served him and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David with insight on that portion. Stand at the crossroads and look Ask for the ancient paths Ask where the good way is And walk in it Shabbat Shalom, brothers and sisters. Wonderful once again to have you with us. Well, it seems like we just began the book of Mark, and here we are moving very close towards the end of the chapter. We're in Mark 15, and 
For a theme for tonight's meeting, we've chosen This is Love. And truly is a lesson in what love really is. We're going to take a closer look at Messiah and the things he suffered for us. And we're going to remember that this is love. 28 things. I made a list of 28 things that he suffered. And as I was making this list, I realized I could have made it a lot bigger. But that wouldn't be practical for the meeting. So I pared it down to 28 items. Yeshua Messiah was born to disgrace. Now, when we read the story in the Gospels, it's all very glorious. You've got angels, you've got kings, you've got all of these things. But from the standpoint of the people around him, it's a very different story. And he knew it would be. He left the glory of heaven to be born as one of us, which means he entered into our world full of suffering and pain. And much of that then was going to come on him as it comes on every person. He was born of a single mother. He was conceived by an unwed mother. Now, we know about the virgin birth, but people around him didn't generally believe in a virgin birth. And even today, he is slandered as an illegitimate child by major religious teachings in Judaism and Islam and other places. He was born in a lowly manger. His family fled as refugees. Refugees usually are not highly regarded. He had a royal family legacy, but the truth is nobody really cared very much. As a child, even his parents didn't fully understand him. Now, I'm not criticizing them. How could anybody understand a perfect human being who's a child? But that's what he was. And this is how I imagine it. I just think that must have been very difficult for him, being a perfect human being in a very imperfect world, especially growing up as a child. In his ministry, he started out being tempted by the enemy, but without sin. He spent many long hours without food, water, or sleep for the sake of his mission. He had no home of his own where he could even lay his head. In his ministry, he was often misunderstood, even by his disciples. He would tell them things that, to him, were so very simple, and yet they were unable to grasp them and misunderstood the point that he was making. And this happened over and over again, 
with the multitudes as well as even his own disciples. It can be very painful being constantly misunderstood. He was unjustly rebuked, accused, and abandoned on many occasions. Often when people didn't like what he was teaching, they would turn against him. During his final sufferings, he was betrayed by a kiss from a friend. He was abandoned by everyone, even even his closest friends. Though he was innocent, he was arrested as a common criminal in the middle of the night. He was subjected to an illegal and unjust trial. He was given no time or opportunity to prepare a defense or even to call a single witness in his own behalf. He was subjected to scandalous false testimony by false witnesses. If all of this had happened to you, where would you be at point number 17? He was falsely accused and convicted by corrupt officials. He was punched, he was slapped, he was mocked, and spit upon by his fellow Jews. He was given up to execution in the place of a murderer. They preferred the murderer over him. He was brutally scourged and physically abused by the Romans. Instead of the crown that he actually deserves, he received a crown of thorns as they mocked him. This is what Roman scourging was like. The whip here was called a flagellum, and it was a leather whip with metal and bone knotted into the thongs. A man called a lector was tasked with the scourging. And the scourging was really quite horrible all by itself. Sometimes people did not survive to be crucified because the scourging would kill them. This Journal of the American Medical Association article explains how scourging worked. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut in the skin and subcutaneous tissues. 
Then as flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. This was delivered prior to crucifixion to set up the crucifixion victim for maximum pain on the cross. Point 23, injured and bleeding, he was forced to carry his cross until he couldn't carry it anymore. He suffered crucifixion, hanging with nails through his hands and feet. His only possessions, his clothes, were stolen by the Romans. He was numbered with the criminals. He was blasphemed, mocked, and insulted while hanging on the cross. Finally, he cried out, gave up his spirit, and finished his work and died. A Roman cross was a terrible thing. Now, there are some that object and say that Yeshua did not die on a cross, that he died on a stake. And the reason they say this is because the Greek word we find in the New Testament is the word staros, and it means a pole or a stake. And actually, this is not contradictory to the fact that he died on a cross because the way this worked is there was a pole or a stake planted in the ground. And the victim then had to carry this cross piece upon his shoulders, and that's called the pabulum, the cross piece. And then after having their hands nailed to the pabulum, where they also had ropes around their elbows, they would be hoisted up while on the pabulum. The pabulum would be hoisted up onto the stake. And that's how crucifixions happen. So you see, depending on how you want to express it, you could say that he died on a stake or a pole, which is true. Or you could say that he died on a cross because that's the ultimate shape of what it turned into. Now, there was more than one kind of cross that the Romans used, depending on the purpose. Sometimes when they crucified a lot of people, they might make a big framework and then crucify many people at once on that. But generally, this is what crucifixion was like for the few victims that we're talking about in this case. Shown here also is the titulus or the sign 
that would be hung over the head of the victim saying what the accusation was or the charge was against them. The purpose of all of this was to scare the population, to frighten them into submission to their Roman overlords. And the message was very clear. If you did what this man did, this is what will happen to you. And so it was incredibly cruel, and it was meant to be that way, to reinforce the iron fist of Rome. It's very important when we look at all of this to realize that Yeshua Messiah was not a helpless victim who was caught unaware and then subjected to all of these sufferings. Before his death, before he even arrived at that point in his ministry, he expressed his love for his sheep. In John chapter 10, you can find this. And there he says, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. When we understand this truth, the whole ordeal, including finally the crucifixion, appears before us in a rather amazing light. Because what the story is about is Yeshua Messiah, the Son of God, willingly accepting all of these sufferings upon himself, even to the point of death, doing that because we need it. Taking on himself what we deserve. Now, many people would read all this and they would say, well, I don't deserve all of that. I don't deserve that to happen to me. And if that's what you think, it's because you don't know how bad sin really is. If you understood how evil and how wicked the sin in you really is, then you would understand that he took your punishment. As a matter of fact, the very fact that he did this condemns sin in the flesh for what it is, tells us what it is. You know, people have a lot of different ideas about love. And most of them are kind of soft and gushy and involve things like kittens and teddy bears and 
candy at Valentine's Day, and hearts, meaningful words like I love you. Followed a lot of times by things like divorce, separation, hatred, and even murder. But that's a whole other story. In 1 John, we find out what love really is. In this is love, not that we loved Elohim. It's not us, right? We did not love him first. He loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is astounding. The more you really contemplate that, the more astounding it becomes that our Father in Heaven would make such a great sacrifice to redeem us. We did not deserve it. <laughs> we do not deserve it. He did it because of His love. That's what it tells us. And not that we loved him, but that he loved us. This love is visceral. It's gritty. It comes to grips with the awful reality of sin and death. And it meets it on its own terms which involves a lot of blood and suffering. Yeshua told us this, For Elohim so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is a well-known and cherished verse, and certainly should be. This verse has given millions of people hope and will continue to. Do you believe? Do you believe in him? Do you believe? that he suffered all of those things to take your punishment so that you could be saved? Or do you believe that he did that so that you need not perish, but that you might have everlasting life? Have you received that? Have you taken hold of that? Is that your possession? It can be, if it isn't. And if it is, well, what do you have that even comes close to that treasure? When people first really come to grips with this, 
many times they ask themselves this question. How can I ever repay him? It certainly seems like you should, doesn't it? It seems like you have a great debt. I know I feel that way. Like I have a great debt. And yet, the truth that we come to as we pursue that line of thought is that you can't ever repay him. With what would you repay him that's worth what he gave? We don't have anything. He wouldn't have come and done it if we had something that would pay the price, right? The very reason he had to do it is because we didn't have anything of that kind of value that could pay that price. This is one of the hardest things about this, I think is the fact that we can't repay it. It's very hard for some people to accept that because they want to earn their way. You know, they want to earn their way. They want to feel that they did it. Well, you know what? You didn't do it, and you can't do it. You have to accept that. You have to accept that what he did for you is a love gift that you can never repay. Should this change your life? If it doesn't, there is something fundamentally wrong with you. You're not really getting this if this does not change your life, if love doesn't come in and grab your heart from this and change the whole direction of your life, you didn't get what this is all about. You see, at a minimum, even though we can't repay it all or any of it, we owe him our love, don't we? Because he loved us. And we owe him our obedience. He earned that. He deserves that from us. He deserved it before he did all that, by the way. Being our creator. But surely, having poured out so much for us, what kind of people would we really be? if we did not love and admire him and obey him after he did so much for us. John also said this, Beloved, if Elohim loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. And isn't that true? Here's one way in which we should be absolutely changed. Did Yeshua pick and choose who he would die for? You know, it's very easy for us to start picking and complaining at one another and tearing other people down 
When we think about the fact that Yeshua died for them, should we really keep doing that kind of stuff? We also ought to love one another. Well, here's another thing. How this should change our life. Another, this is love. This is talking about our love for him here, not his love for us, our love for him. This is love, that we should walk according to his commandments. This is not a verse that gets quoted in church very much, if ever. Somehow the commandments are supposed to be oppressive, and he did away with them. But clearly, John had a different point of view. And, you know, he was one of Yeshua's disciples. He probably knew something about it. And he didn't say, follow his commandments to be saved. That's not what he said. He knew we're not saved by what we do. He said, this is love, that we should walk according to his commandments. In other words, if we've really been affected by his love toward us, and we have real love back towards him, then it's going to cause us to want to keep his commandments. He said the same thing too, by the way. And so this is what we do. We're not doing it to get saved. We know all that. You know, the Christians try and tell us this. Oh, well, you shouldn't keep the law, the Torah, because that's trying to get saved through works. Well, it would be if that's how we were trying to be saved, but it isn't. We know we're saved through what Messiah did for us. We do it because this is love to walk according to his commandments. This is how we love him. This is what he wants for our life. You see, we understand the reason he's given us the commandments is because he loves us, right? Would he die for us and then give us commandments that are a burden? Does that make sense to you? The commandments are given to us because he loves us. And he wants us to walk in the way that is good for us. Why wouldn't we want to do that? If we really understand anything about love, about his love or about what love is for us. Well, there's lots of places where it says this in the New Testament. 1 John also says this. This is the love of Elohim, that we keep his commandments. There it is, once again. Our motive to keep his commandments is that we love him. 
And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. So, because we love him, we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous. Now, wait a minute. Isn't he arguing with the Apostle Paul? Didn't Paul say that the commandments are some kind of a burden and we got to get rid of them? That's what you would think listening to some false teachers. But the Apostle Paul never said that. And the scriptures don't teach that. His commandments are not grievous. They're filled with wisdom for our lives. They're filled with his love. They're not grievous. Then it says, whatever is born of Elohim overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. This is the ultimate end of what Yeshua Messiah suffered for us. Yes, he took our punishment to save us. But not just to save us so we could just go on like we always did. He saved us so that we could have the victory in the world like he did. So that we could actually be empowered to be overcomers in this world. And was he not the overcomer? To be filled with his love and his life. Is what faith is all about. And faith overcomes the world. As we talk about these things that he did, you know, we all kind of have the same problem dealing with this chapter because this is all so big that we cannot reduce it to words. And the only thing we really can do is give him our life. That's how we really express what we feel about all of this. And we let him change us. We let him turn us into overcomers. And you know what was so encouraging is we're seeing that happen every single day. We're seeing people around us growing in him, growing in his love, and overcoming every single day. And that really is such a beautiful thing, and that is the result of his real love. Oh,
You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Some of the scripture verses referenced in today's program are Luke chapter 2 verse 48 through verse 50, John chapter 10 verse 17 through verse 18, 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 through verse 11, John chapter 3 verse 16, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through verse 6, and 1 John chapter 5 verse 1 through verse 4. Further teachings and study materials on Messiah in Bible Prophecy, the Torah, Wisdom, the Pharisees, the House of David, Yeshua as the Son of David and as the King of Israel, the post-Messiah Davidic Dynasty, the Organization of the Assembly of Believers in their day, the Book of Acts, Paul and his teachings, Loving Your Neighbor, Salvation, Love, Faith, the good news, sharing the good news, and being an overcomer, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! The restoration of the remnant of Israel is one of the most undertaught, neglected, and unknown major events in Bible prophecy. A strange fact, since prophecies and references to this event can be found all throughout almost every major book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, Yahweh has raised up Zion ministry to teach His remnant nation of Israel everything they need to know about this often neglected truth in His perfect timing. To learn who the remnant of Israel is, what the Zion mission is, and why we teach the things we do, go to our website at zion.org and click on Remnant Vision in the menu bar. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. I've not forsaken you.
Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah 31, 35-37 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here, the sea still roars, and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to his covenant with Israel. Visit our community site Zion Tabernacle and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu ben David's seminar entitled One Nation Written in the Stars, now available free of charge as a part of our Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with his remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click Join Us. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Then click Join Us. Ask for the ancient Oh